Love is, love is, love is the message. Okay, hello. This is Love is the Message. This is a podcast about music, counterculture and related things. I'm Jeremy Gilbert. I'm here with Tim Lawrence. Hi. And today we're going to be thinking about the emergence of the idea of the dance floor and the sound system as new types of cultural, social, aesthetic practice, again, really around the turn of the 70s. So I guess the first thing to ask in thinking about this, Tim, is like, well, what I mean, what were dance floors like in the 60s? Well, apparently they weren't that great. Um, so <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> this is why the 70s had to happen, of course. Uh, the history of social dance goes back hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. Um, so people have always looked to come together dancing. Obviously, for the longest time, it was all about dan- the, the only dancing that could take place would be to live music. Um but uh, across the course of the 20th century, different forms of amplification developed. So, and the, the main one of the main ways that this was kind of used in the United States. I mean, obviously there were kind of live concerts, but then there were also these kind of record hops uh, where people would gather for social dance. Um, but the main the main things, the main, maybe one of the main things to kind of note at this point anyway is that the absorption with sound, the idea that sound uh, and sound reproduction was absolutely central to the experience of the dance floor, as far as I'm aware, didn't really get going uh, until the 1970s. Uh, there might have been different precursors in the 1960s, though. I mean, so you know, the Grateful Dead's an obvious reference point here. Do you know what? To what extent were they kind of also exploring? new ways of reproducing sound that would kind of, you know, elevate the musical experience? Well, both The Grateful Dead in California and also Pink Floyd, the sort of uh, flagship band of the acid rock scene in London in the late 60s, in their respective scenes, they were both famous for having the best sound system, having a kind of customised PA system. It's obviously, technically, it has some similarities, but it's pretty different from a system for playing back records because, you know, you're, you're amplifying live music. It's not exactly the same thing. But, but the overall idea is pretty similar, that you want, you want to create a sound that really fills the room but also has a real sense of clarity that doesn't sort of disturb people. Of course, in both those cases, but especially in the case of The Grateful Dead, it was... I mean, it was it was very much motivated by a sense that like, literally most of the people in their crowds who were dancing to their music were assumed to be tripping, were assumed to be on acid, and the idea was that it would it would mar the acid experience if you were listening to dirty, noisy music sound with like lots of interference, and the the, the more clarity as well as the more power you had, the more you would have a kind of fulfilling experience. Of course. I mean, the Grateful Dead sound engineer and, and to some extent also their manager was also the most famous LSD chemist of the late mm. 60s, Augustus Owsley. Mm. This really sort of fascinating figure who, you know, he was famous as a kind of self-taught chemist. He was arguably, I think, the first of the LSD chemists to sort of experiment with the idea of making LSD that was purer than ordinary pharmaceutical grade in the, in the hope that that treating it as this sacred substance that had to be 
the production of which had to be attended by these sort of alchemical rituals and prayers and things would would enhance its spiritual effectiveness. But even more, he was really preoccupied with sound. He was preoccupied with the idea of sound as a kind of technological magic and sound amplification and also recording, actually. He was also... He was very, he was quite influential in sort of start pioneering some use of kind of multi-track recording. So these, this kind of complex of elements really went together in that context, I think. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's this, there's this sense in which, you know, um, on some sort of level, aspects of the technology um, had existed for decades. Yes. Uh, you know, the, like the, the Clipshon speaker that became so important to... Um, the loft and you know and uh, and and a number of other parties uh, was was widely regarded as as the best certainly one of the best stereo speakers um, available at that particular time and and also one that was uh, efficient enough to be able to be to play at a party. This kind of a technology had existed for a while, right? What ha- what changes is a, is a social scenario, a wider cultural scenario in which there's a new demand for high quality reproduce stereo sounds to exist not only in someone's front living room which was what it was kind of almost originally designed for and actually to become something which is shared publicly um so this is again something that the demand for new ways of listening and indeed new ways of dancing come out of this thing that we keep referring to uh counterculture the mass movement demanding for social change yeah i think you're right and i I guess i mean i guess the counterculture itself draws on the things which immediately precede it, or, but, but which are include a sort of whole redefinition of what constitutes art, like what, what, what forms of cultural and musical practice you can take really seriously. In all these cases, we're talking about music to dance to. So you go back to the 50s. I mean, yeah, exactly. Already in the 50s is a pretty well-established idea like if you're going to hear a jazz band, like if there won't be probably won't be any good amplification, but you want to hear good acoustics, mm. and then if you're a jazz fan listening to your LPs at home, indeed that's why you would buy a Clipshorn. That's mm. what, what the Clipshorns are designed for. You'd probably use a valve-based amplifier, which many hi-fi aficionados in 2021 would say has never really been improved upon in any significant way. So you're already having this experience at home of wanting to sort of immerse yourself in sound, but nobody would think of treating music that's designed primarily for dancing to with that level of seriousness. So there's music to dance to, there's rhythm and blues, there's... There's, there's been jazz, sort of hot jazz to dance to for years, and big band jazz, there's rock and roll. Mm. But then what happens in the mid-60s is you, you get the emergence of the concept of rock. To some extent, when the concept of rock, as distinct from rock and roll, emerges, uh, you know, I've always said it, 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 it emerges pretty fully formed on like one half of Bob Dylan's first electric album. Yeah, subterranean homesick blues. That is the moment when the idea of rock as an art form, as opposed to rock and roll as a dance form, really emerges. And you know, I've never heard of anybody dancing to any of those Bob Dylan records. And the, and the Beatles completely stop making music anybody would ever dance to because they want to aspire to this kind of artistic seriousness. But then, in some other strands of rock culture, the idea of rock music as still being sort of derived from rock and roll and still being something you might dance to, but but also aspiring to a certain sort of level of spiritual or political seriousness. It, it does carry on. I've never really thought about that before, actually. But that, I mean, really, that's what characterises acid rock, actually. I mean, that is what sort of defines acid rock and most obviously the Grateful Dead, is that 
on the one hand, they're part of this mo- this moment that is going to produce ideas like progressive rock, like the idea of rock as a serious art form. But also, they are really committed to dance, and partly they're committed to dance because they're committed. They are committed to this idea of a sort of psychedelic, you know, the the concert or the gig as a sort of psychedelic collective ritual. You know, something more than just just a, a, a chance to get drunk and get laid. There's an interesting parallel with the way in which like we've talked about before. At the same time, James Brown and funk is also sort of redefining what happens on dance floors. It's sort of also changing what's happening on, on soul dance floors so that you know it might not be thought about in quite the same terms of sort of artistic or spiritual seriousness, but it has a sort of a new level of intensity, doesn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm also also related to what you're saying is this kind of, I think there's this sense that, I mean, rock's kind of main intention doesn't quite seem to be dancing. There's something else intertwined um, that is is to do with a kind of sense of subjectivity or the self. It's about uh, an outlook on society. It's kind of somewhat rebellious, uh, wanting to be expressive, having a sense of politics, having a sense of kind of pent-up energy. I mean, from the point of view of what we want to start to also think about in, in this this particular show, I guess, is the way that sound also goes in, in, in develops in conjunction with with the dance floor, and that dance floor moment had sort of you know started a break up around the the latter part of well a, well it starts with rock and roll rock and roll being I think one of the last forms of of partner dancing to kind of break through in the United States before this moment in the 1970s when freeform dancing becomes the way that people go out dancing. So there was this sense with rock and roll, it's only just a partner dance. There's often no physical contact between what would normally be a man and a woman. Um, so there's this kind of sense of the dance floor opening up with rock and roll but not going to the point of freeform dancing. This coinciding with the social movement you know, of which rock was part, or a countercultural movement of which rock was part, but didn't kind of quite know how to channel this kind of dance energy. And and disco becomes this thing, or pre-disco dance culture of the early 1970s, becomes this thing that brings together a whole series of developments in sound, but also liberates the kind of dance floor. And it partly liberates the dance floor, I guess, you know, in part because of the the spirit of the times, the sense that freedom was so important to the era, the idea that you, you'd be dancing in a couple and you'd have to be fo- following basically all of these established moves and practices in order to, to carry out any social dance. That kind of all goes out of the window and it, it coincides with, amongst other things, a significant proportion of gay men flocking into the dance scene, having been previously excluded from public discotheques uh, until the sanctuary uh, reopened uh, at the beginning of 1970. So it was this combustion, this coming together of all these different channels, uh, which was indeed quite explosive uh, and happened at the beginning of 1970. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we have to acknowledge, I mean, otherwise we'll get complaints that, for example, in the late 60s, there are clubs like the Twisted Wheel in Manchester where people are getting pretty intense, dancing to soul. I think people would say... It wasn't just kind of ritualized partner dancing. I mean, I think that sort of intensity on the dance floor and mm. the kind of move away from ritualized partner dance, partner dancing, 
was happening across quite a broad spectrum. But and also, I'm just saying, people are going to want us to qualify this. And of course, yeah, you know, yeah, on, yeah. But, but on on disco dance floors and on rave dance floors to this day, you know, you people do partner dance. You know? Of course, people people who fancy each other dance with each other, and they use it as a sort of uh, as a sort of um, mating ritual. So, but I think even then, even in those, I think we sort of have to be clear to people what we're talking about. So I think we are talking about a significant change, which is a change really away from a situation where even when that happens in the kind of dance floors we're talking about, usually it's experienced as having a degree of spontaneity, that it's a sort of, you know, it's a sort of emergent property of the dance floor experience that you end up in a kind of semi-erotic display with somebody. It's not that you're sort of following a a pre-programmed ritual dance, which certainly for white people... We could sort of raise questions about it within sort of other communities. Certainly for white people, this is like a big change. It's a big change that takes place over the course of the 60s, basically. And of course, and of course, it's a change that, you know, people have resisted. I mean, that, this is, I mean it's a change which, to some extent, arguably, people have seen coming for decades. That's why rock and roll in the 50s was considered shocking, like in the, in the, in the segregated southern states. They thought it was going to, you know... People were going to get people were getting all excited and dancing like black people, and that we could and we and dancing with black people. You can't have that. So yeah, but I think, but clearly, this critical moment. You're, you're, yeah, of course, clearly, the the real sort of transitional moment, according to us, is <laughs> is basically around 1970, the kind of the moment of the the turn of the 70s, basically. Yeah, but we know we just know from videos of you know watching Woodstock, the Woodstock Festival, or whatever that there you know people were not always clearly not always dancing within partners, and that this was coming under concerted pressure within the second half of the nineteen sixties. But if you went to a discotheque in the second half of the nineteen sixties, you would largely or almost exclusively have seen people dancing in couples. That was the yeah. that was a social regulation at the time. It was still yes, a, you, you would never see two men dance, even if they were straight. It was illegal for two men to dance uh, with each other. One of the interesting things is just how conservative discotheque culture was in in the nineteen sixties. In some respects, compared to what was going on, you know, within you know the wider countercultural movement. You know, nineteen come nineteen sixty nine. If you had the the chance to kind of go to Woodstock for the weekend, you know, or go out to a discotheque in the New York City for the weekend. You had been absolutely mad to stay and gone to the the discotheque in New York City because the promise of change and excitement and radicality and, you know, different forms of sociality, that was all happening up in, up at the festival. You know, it, what it didn't do is create a scenario in which people willingly decide, I mean, this is really what we're talking about, is they willingly decide at the beginning of 1970 um, that each week they want to go out dancing all night. uh, And in some cases and in some spots, they will go out dancing for 10 hours or 12 hours. And they will do so in in, um, spaces that are designed with extreme care and intelligence to maximize this experience the experience this is new and so that's what we're that's what we're talking about it is new yeah it is new also as an aside you know who was the self-styled king of the discotheques in britain in the 1960s no 
Jimmy Savile. Well, I was going to guess at that, but <laughs> <laughs> it's a name I'll try not to like throw around casually. <laughs> well, well, it doesn't in no way undermines your case that the discotheque wasn't a, wasn't a space of freezing. Yeah, no, I never, I never quite understood the argument about Jimmy Savile being kind of the world's first DJ and the rest of it. Well, nobody's uh, making that now. Yeah. <laughs> nobody's making that claim now. I mean, let's do this another time. You know, but, yeah, I, but I'm just Jimmy Savile. We'll name <laughs> no, no, no. What I'm everybody about. who said Jimmy Savile was the first DJ. Music, dance, sound systems, counterculture. This is Love Is the Message. This uh, chapter that I'm writing at the moment on disco and labour, I'm going over some of the themes that obviously were established uh, in Love Saves the Day, but also kind of in- introducing a few twists, a bit more analytical in places, thinking through the this theme in particular of work. Anyhow, uh, in the process of doing this, I started to just kind of like toy around with an idea that I think I'm almost certainly going to oh, have cut from the piece because it's, it's already too long, but it's to compare like the pastime of jogging with you know the act of going out dancing, and I yeah, really yeah. I think we should come back to this, but they are both phenomena of the seventies. Yeah, that's true. But whereas one that's is true. all about you know it's quite finally is about individual flexibility, keeping yourself healthy. So basically, the idea is be a good worker or be a good family member. Going out dancing, you know, contrasts in a you know which happens in parallel effectively happens you know has a very different set of values. Ones which are much more obviously kind of collective apart from anything else you only get your thrill on the dance floor if you're surrounded by other people uh i'm sure if you go out jogging and you're in a big you know you're in a marathon or something i'm sure that that unquestionably would bring its own sort of any anything that's public has its thrill but basically when people started out dancing at the early 70s on a weekly basis and wanted to go out all night, they knew that it had the crowd this this is the other thing that happens we start to have a sense of this thing called the crowd or what we would call, you know, what sometimes gets called the vibe um, of a collectivity that has an influence over the DJ. This is where it all starts. In a sense, um, it's from the dance floor rather than the DJ booth, that kind of discotheque culture. Or disco- no, well that, well, that is really interesting. And, and that is relevant, actually, because, I mean, Jimmy Savile does, there are, inter- I mean, Jimmy Savile talked about being a DJ in really creepy terms. Mm. You know, he talked about it in terms of like controlling the crowd. Yeah. Like he's just. Oh, really? Just, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. He just, he describes himself with some interviews where he's talking about being a DJ and he's just a, you know, and it is kind of, he just, he already sounds like a, like a evil villain. No, that's really interesting. And, you know, what you say about Jimmy Savile parallels is, you know, the most famous DJ in New York City during the 1960s was a guy called Terry Noel. And I interviewed him for Love Saves the Day. And his, his entire, analysis of his own approach to DJing was to, to was to position himself or depict himself as a puppeteer. But of course, the, the contrast here is with, da- with, with David and with this kind of emerging idea, but also actually the... Well, like the Francis grateful- as well. Sorry, go on. Yeah, okay, yeah. Francis you tell us, yeah, we'll talk about the Grateful Dead, if that's what you're going to Well, do. with all of these guys, I mean, the Grateful Dead are basically a sort of, I mean, I always say, actually, as a sort of long-time enemy of rock culture, I always want to claim that the Grateful Dead are not even a rock band. They actually, <laughs> they play a kind a unique form of white jazz. But they basically, what they are doing is, kind of in, what they are known for is this improvised music. Mm. 
And they would always talk about how absolutely, like, indissociable from the crowd, the experience of the crowd, their relationship to the crowd, their performances were. Like, they, they didn't like making studio records. Mm. And the reason, they, the precise reason why they encouraged this whole culture of trading tapes, like bootleg recordings, but they weren't bootlegs because they encouraged it, of mm. their live recordings, of their concerts, was precisely because they always said, look, our, our art only really happens at the moment when we're playing like with a crowd. Like, it, it can't mm. be done in any other way. Mm. And, it, and it was absolutely informed by these ideas coming out of the counterculture, coming out of strands of mysticism that informed the counterculture, coming out of the countercultural critique of elitist, heroic, macho individualism. You know, it, and it all kind of, you know, it's all based to some extent on this idea that the person who's up there performing or up there DJing is not a kind of heroic individual who is sadistically doing something to the crowd, but rather they are just a sort of channel. You know, they're like a sort of shaman or they're like it, it, what, what's happening is, is something almost sort of mystical. And what they're doing is actually letting go of their ego. They're evacuating any sense of sort of personal identity and control and just becoming a channel through which the crowd expresses itself to itself. Enjoying the show? If you can, please consider supporting what we do via our Patreon so we can stay free. You can find the link in the show notes. Thanks and back to the show. So this is so we was, let's listen to some music and uh, yes. and let's start with um, Ola Tundri Drums of Passion and this is a really interesting record uh, in terms of thinking about this emerging matrix that kind of involved faces, sound systems, um, music, and and people dancing. Um, and Francis Gresso had been the, was the DJ at the Sanctuary uh, at the point when it was running as a basically failing discotheque for, for straights. He had even kind of been uh, a semi-acolyte of, of Terry Noel's at one point, although they would sort of becoming rivals. And it was on it was at the very beginning of, of 1970 that uh, these, these two guys, Seymour and Shelley, who owned a bunch of gay bars in the West Village decided to buy the sanctuary, reopen it and turn it into the first discotheque uh, in New York City that was would openly welcome gay men into its midst. The only employee they, they kept on following the buyout was Francis Grasso, the DJ. Francis therefore had to kind of respond to uh, or had to understand what was going to be involved in the transition from playing to this kind of ex- exclusively straight crowd to playing one that was very, very mixed and also included a significant number for the first time of gay men. And what he found is that the kind of energy on the dance floor was was transformed when the new crowd came into the sanctuary. I mean, it was this kind of, it was a moment of a sense of, you know, the pursuit of freedom and liberation was already quite intense. Uh, generally speaking, within the late 1960s, this was what was on, on many people's minds. But then you add to that the sense of the need for freedom of you know not only the kind of gay, lesbian, bisexual and trans crowd, uh, which was you know, already marked, but also the participation in this setting. And it was pretty much the same at the loft, of course, of significant numbers of, of women and people of colour. These are all people who kind of been oppressed historically and have ex- also experienced this oppression through the body, through being told that you can't go in certain public spaces or you can't, you're not allowed to kind of kiss that person or whatever it might be. Or you've got to kind of, because you, you know, you, you can give birth, therefore you have to follow all of these social codes uh, so these group, these people also would wanted release. 
in addition to the general desire for release. Um, so it was doubly kind of in, intensified, if you like, at the century. And fr- Francis had come from this from this background, which was just like the established uh, practice within discotheque culture in New York City at the time, whereby DJs would play five or six records, and then I think I've said this in an, in an earlier episode, would then kind of their their job was to kind of clear the dance floor and get everyone to go and buy a drink. So they'd put on a slow number, and so this was the rhythm. When Francis got into this, found himself playing to this new this new crowd at the sanctuary. He said he didn't even dare put on a slow record to kind of make them go and play at the bar, um, because he was worried that there would be a kind of you know there'd be a rebellion. Uh, the people would boo him, boo him off the stage, and he'd lose his job. As not to, so this is an ex- you know it wasn't like Francis Grasso invented the kind of idea of mi- of mixing between two records. But because the energy became so enhanced on the, on with this new crowd congregating on the dance floor, he found himself needing to respond in the way he played as the kind of the the artist or the performer, I guess you could say. And he did this by no longer putting on slow records in order to kind of work the bar, and secondarily, indeed, tried to find a way of maintaining the energetic flow by being the first DJ to mix between two records. And one of the, and the one of the records that really captures this kind of historic development, and there were very similar developments also at the loft, but David hadn't been operating in the, or open in the same way prior to 1970 that the sanctuary had. So the kind of the parallel at the sanctuary is, uh, or the contrast, I should say, at the sanctuary is more interesting. And one of the records that came to embody this this um, this transformation or this change, I sh- uh, maybe should say, uh, which David also pl- liked to play at the loft, was Ola Tunji's uh, Drums of Passion, recorded in 1959 in New York City, as it happens. But it was kind of, it was a classic, uh, it was a classic example of West African drumming styles recorded by Ola Tunji, who was the son of a, a diplomat, I believe, who was based in, in New York City. Anyway, up to this point, Francis Grasso had been playing Santana's Jingo, which is the kind of is the Santana Mexican rock band's cover version of uh, the original of drum of drums of passion, but it was a rock, it still remains a rock track, even if it had certain certain a Latin you know Latinized aspects to it, um, perhaps quite mild. Uh, whereas the Olatunji just full on polyrhythmic uh, drumming uh, is very intense, very stripped down, very tribal, and and Francis are like you know well if you know he's like well. He didn't feel he could play the Olatunji to his previous straight crowd. He already loved this record. But when the gay, you know, the, the mixed slash gay crowd came into the sanctuary, uh, Francis was like, yeah, this is the moment where I can, you know, this crowd is limber enough. They want to party hard enough to get into this record. One of the things I was thinking about when you were talking about how the Grasso is playing records in a way which is no longer organised around the periodic consumption of alcohol is the fact that just on a purely on a biomaterial basis, what's going on, as we said before, is this is a crowd of people getting themselves high on endorphins, like whatever mm. else they're taking, they're getting mm. high on endorphins. Because alcohol completely just kills your endorphin. I mean, alcohol just kill your endorphin high, however much exercise you've done, you know. Mm. 
And so, it, it, and that, that as a sort of as dancing as a collective practice, which is partly organised around collectively raising your endorphin levels through dance, it, mm. it always has a very tense relationship with alcohol. Yeah, uh, and of course that's one reason why other drugs get taken up. And you know, if people are going to take drugs in those circumstances, they want to take drugs which are going to enhance rather than suppress their experience of kind of raising their endorphin levels collectively on the dance floor. And that's where LSD comes in at this stage because actually it turns out LSD will, mass- will massively amplify. You know, LSD just acts as a sort of amplifier to whatever's happening rather than being a sort of suppressant like alcohol. And so, and it's David who really. Um, does this, isn't it? It's David Mancuso at the Loft who really brings together the sort of the Grateful Dead idea of dancing on LSD with this kind of emerging New York idea of dancing collectively to, to this very rhythmic music. Yeah, well, as, as you know, as, as you know as well as anyone, um, David became you know deeply interested in sound reproduction and developing a sound system. Even during the, he bought his first pair of Clipshons during the nineteen sixties. We've, we've we've mentioned this in passing before. Um, so he was already interested in kind of you know the elevated experience of life that good quality sound reproduction can give you. You know, just the sound of music heard as if it was music, effectively. I, I'm, I'm only just thinking about this now, but, um, you know, when David first heard a pair of clipshorns, he couldn't see them, actually, because apparently they were behind a curtain. And it was, he bought them from a friend called Jimmy Miller, uh, who had got them from Richard Long, this kind of guy who we'll go on to talk about a bit more later on in, in this episode. And Dave, I just I don't remember the exact words that David used or what he told me, but he what effectively when he heard these clipshorns but couldn't see them because they were behind the curtain, he was blown away. He's like, Where what is this sound? So it was a pure response to beautiful music that sounded musical. That was the beginning point for David, you know, putting his ear to the the whirlpool in the stream while tripping and hearing all the sonic information, you know, all the information in the universe, David said, or something along those lines. These are, it's a very kind of, it's a very uh, instinctive kind of innate response to, to sound. I th- and I, th- I guess, you know, I mean, I, this is something you, you, you're better at talking about than me, but there's this sort of, we should be going forwards, but to go backwards a little bit, there's something about the human body about vibration, about the beginning of the universe, beginning with sound, the bang, about music being basically a fundamentally vibrational experience that is core to who we are as human beings. And it's why I guess we feel that this is interesting to kind of go back to this culture in the 1970s, because this was a, this was a transformative way for us to kind of, through the human body, experience vibration in the form of music and find ways to take that further yeah well you're right and i but and also i think and it's one reason why that the idea of the counterculture of the of that moment still holds its appeal is because it's partly about trying to hold together the sort of spiritual and the sort of biological and the political dimensions of that way of thinking all, all together because you were saying earlier quite rightly how one of the things that's going on at the time is all these groups of people who have experienced oppression through their bodies you know, are, are, try, are seeking forms of liberation. And we could even add to that, well, it's also true of straight white men who've had to, had to have a very constricted, restrained way of inhabiting their body in the mid-20th century. You know, you, 
because of a specific kind of build, you were not supposed to be very emotive, you were absolutely not supposed to dance and enjoy dance well and enjoy it in quite the same way. I mean, that, there was there were class dimensions to that as well, but but also like in kind of in in sort of philosophy and in sort of political theory, you know, people are also trying to think about exactly this set of issues at that time, aren't they? This is the moment when Jean Francois Lyotard writes his book, The Libidon and the Economy. And people are really trying to sort of get away from the mid-20th century idea, which is really a sort of product of certain strands of psychoanalysis, which was the idea that, well, sort of repressing your body, controlling your body, was the necessary cost of being a modern, like, civilised human being. And instead, people are thinking about, are starting to think that, you know, a lot of the ways we are encouraged to inhabit our bodies are the product of sort of oppressive social power dynamics. And so you've got Deleuze and Guattari, the kind of French philosophers, trying to trying to rework psychoanalysis and, and, and mix it with radical strands of Marxism. And they're thinking about, you know, they have these completely impenetrable phrases, like the, the body without organs, which is sort of a a way of describing an experience of the body in which your body, your experience of the body is no longer defined by the sort of cultural norms which determine, you know, your gender, your sexuality, your identity, the sort of correct use of the body. There was Marcuse as well. Herbert Marcuse was kind of... Yeah, well, yes. No, of well, Marcuse is much more, yeah. Marcuse... Well, Marcuse had this quite complicated idea of what he called sort of re- repressive desublimation. And he, he's more writing in the early 60s and he's talking about the way in which kind of consumer culture encourages a very kind of regulated, like, increase in your appetite. So he's saying that people are... De- like, sublimation for Freud is the process by which you you take your natural urges to kill people or fuck people, and you then you 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 push that energy into other areas of life. So the reason you produce great art or you do the washing up or do anything really is because, is mainly because you can't actually do you can't express your animal energy in other more primitive. Well, civilization ways. is based on repression. Basically. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right, and that is called sublimation. And then Marcuse talks about desublimation in other words in advanced consumer capitalism you're actually sort of encouraged to you know indulge your appetites you know for for sex or for food or for drink but he says in a capitalist society you get what what he calls repressive desublimation this idea that that you are you are being encouraged to sort of desublimate but in a way which ultimately isn't really liberatory because it's completely privatized it's completely individualized you're just being trained to be a good consumer Who's who's sort of an addict? Actually, I mean, the ultimate repressively desublimated person is an addict. Someone who's yeah, they're not they're not they're not living life like a sort of Victorian sort of Puritan, like repressing all their desire for pleasure. But but they're even more repressed because they're just hooked on smack or whatever. So, and then but then the the part of the project of the counterculture is well, how do we get desublimated in a non-repressive way? And I would say that the most the, the most immediate answer to that is well we do it together we do it in groups we do we don't just do it at home watching TV we don't just do it like you know at the shopping mall kind of buying stuff we do it in some other way and of course the, the loft is like one expression a very pure sort of expression of that notion that 
But also there's something about the sort of controlled nature of the loft uh, and indeed the sound system, the fact that the sound system, the careful, very careful management of the sound system, the, the careful curation and you know the precision engineering, quite literally, of the sound system, it becomes a way of, of cultivating an experience within which that desublimation won't be repressive. It will be lib- genuinely liberating and empowering. We're making this podcast because we believe that alternative history and radical ideas should be given as much airtime as possible. Yet it's increasingly difficult for knowledge of this kind to circulate through the mainstream media or university sector. We love doing it and we're committed to making sure it's available for free to anyone who wants it. But at the end of the day, for us and our producer Matt, this is what we do for our jobs. This kind of work isn't just a hobby and we've each permanently lost a significant chunk of our regular income due to the pandemic. We won't be able to carry on doing this without some financial support. So if you have the means and you like what we're doing, please consider supporting us via our Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Thanks. So Eddie Kendrick's Girl, You Need a Change Your Mind is one of the most important records to be played at the loft and the wider downtown party scene during the first half of the 1970s. It was very much a record that kind of David picked out. Um, it, it's it's long. It's got a rousing falsetto. It has two crescendos. Uh, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful record. Um, but it presented some interesting, uh, a sort of interesting uh, dilemma for David. So David started to and started to develop his sound system in in in, the, in these different ways. And one of the most significant ones was that he started to feel that it was in, that certain records that he was listening to were a little bit muffled, um, needed a bit more kind of uh, a great a greater degree of kind of you know treble input. Um, so he devised uh, these this piece of of gear which uh, which became known as a tweeter array he got uh, an engineer alex rosner who had bought his second pair of clipshorns from to build them according to david's own specification uh, and he hung them from the ceiling and of key moments in a party uh, or in moments where he felt that records needed a bit more sharpness he would kind of turn on these tweeter arrays uh, but that created an imbalance and he felt that um there needed to be offset with bass reinforcements and he built richard long uh, he asked richard long to build him uh some bass, bass reinforcements that would offset uh, records that seemed to maybe have a bit more too much treble and eddie kendricks was one of these records um D- david just came to you know as much as he loved the record he felt it it lacked a kind of bass presence um so so bass reinforcements were partly introduced uh, for that reason this went on to transform the world of sound within within party culture and discotheque culture before this point no one had thought about tampering with sound and uh, you know one could say enhancing it um, in these particular ways. But the interesting thing with David is that after doing this for a while, he eventually decided to pull back and get rid of the tweet arrays and the base reinforcements because he decided that that was um, involved too much interference, too much ego on the part of the DJ. 
and that the most important thing he could do was to let the music kind of speak for itself. But by that point, Twitter raise and bass reinforcements are out, and bass, as we know, has gone on, in particular, has gone on to uh, define a great deal of party culture. Um, so bass obviously has this long lineage going back to also not just not just New York City, uh, and Rick, you know David Mancuso asking Richard Long to build bass reinforcements, but obviously Jamaica. What, what do you know about what was going on with the development of sound system culture uh, in Jamaica? When did that accelerate as a as you know as a you know a technology designed for dancing effectively? Well, it's pretty much precisely coterminous with the other things we've been talking about. Mm. It's happening at the same time. So in, in the second half of the sixties, an already very strong kind of well established culture of social dance and especially social dance often outdoors because, you know, it was warm and dry weather a lot of the time in Jamaica. Um, that very well-established culture of social da- dance, including dancing to records, really sort of develops and takes on a new level of intensity with the development first of Rocksteady, really, um, sort of the immediate precursor to sort of reggae proper in the second half of the 60s and then the development of reggae mm. and the development of dub reggae and roots reggae is very heavy, mm. heavily sort of politicised and sort of spiritualised versions. Mm. And so there's a very similar, very comparable attention to the mechanics of amplification as if that is itself a sort of almost spiritual exercise, like getting the sound right, getting the best sound. It's also competitive, of course. It's also driven by the fact that the Jamaican sound systems are, are competitive with each other. But this this concept of this distinctive concept of the sound system that emerges in Jamaica, in some ways, as a sort of organisational concept, I think in some ways it's sort of better developed than than what develops in New York. Because it's interesting, because of course, when we started doing events with David in London, eventually the collective that, that organised those events decided to, to call ourselves a sound system. Yeah, yeah. And David didn't understand why. He wasn't familiar with that Jamaican usage. Mm-hmm. But that Jamaican usage, in a way, is a, of that concept of the sound system. I think it, it, it's a better developed as an organisational concept. Because in, in that usage, the term doesn't only refer to like the hi fi. It refers to the idea that your speakers and amplifiers and turntables are central to what you do and they're distinctive and you're constantly working on them and the role the engineer is one of the artists in the collective. But that also it's the whole collection of elements together. It's the it's the equipment, it's the records, it's the DJ, and it's the MCs, of course. I mean that's where MCing over records really begins as an art form in that moment. And so this notion that the whole assemblage of elements all together are what makes the experience and what has a sort of collective identity this becomes a kind of central feature of reggae culture and dub music culture. That also becomes a, an important um, idea with Jamaican immigrants in both in the States and especially in Britain. And if, I mean, in New York, DJ Cool Herc is one of those who, who is often credited with the invention of hip-hop is one of those guys. You know, he, he is basically emceeing over funk records instead of over reggae records, and that, that's the only difference. And then also there's this idea of... the Now, bass takes on this really specific significance in, in dub and reggae culture, because really what you're trying to do is you're trying to create this experience, this experience of what the uh, critic and theorist Julian Enriquez calls sonic dominance, 
this experience of kind of being all sort of overpowered by the sound, but also empowered by that experience at the same time. And it's this experience of having the bass kind of shake your bones, shake your skin. And of course, bass is, you know, this is something I've written about, other people have written about, you know, our experience of heavily amplified bass is our experience of sound as a physical force, as a bodily force. You know, it's your your eardrums and your brain register the treble frequencies, but your whole body registers the bass. And so it's that, it's a sort of experience of materiality, but it's also the experience which is supposed to be engendered you know, it, I mean, the ideal situation in which you're supposed to listen to dub or roots reggae is listening to a sound system, smoking weed. You're supposed to experience the state of what is called irie, which is a sort of elevated state of consciousness at, at the same time as a, as a state of sort of absorption in the sound and in the moment. It's really, it's really kind of interesting parallel. And I guess, I mean, one of the most interesting kind of depictions, not just of... Uh, not just of this kind of music and dance, actually, but of any kind of music and dance. It was actually the film that was shown on the BBC just uh, just earlier this year, when, no, last year, 2020. This is part of Steve McQueen's series of films about the Black British experience. The series was called Small Axe, and the film that everybody talked about was a film called Lover's Rock, which is a film about a house party. And it is, you know, it's the greatest cinematic representation of a house party ever. You know, it was one of those things, actually, when I watched it, I thought it's so, I I wish David had been around to see it. He'd have just, he'd have loved it so much. Uh, And of course, the track that everybody went crazy about, like on on social media the day after this, was this this track, was The Revolutionaries, uh, Kunta Kinte dub from 1976, a really classic piece of, classic piece of heavy dub, you know, really designed to incite an experience of collective intensity on the dance floor, which is which is parallel to, but also very different from the kind of experience that people are trying to get, you know, on the Grateful Dead dance floor, at the loft, at the sanctuary. So if we were to move on with this history, sort of thinking about the history of sound systems into the into the seventies, to the club in New York, which becomes globally famous for its sound system, isn't the loft? The, the loft actually, the loft only becomes really famous for its sound system outside these sort of cognoscenti underground circles in New York. After you did your book, really, I mean, I you know I knew about the loft. But what I knew about the loft before you did your book, but what I knew about the loft was uh, there were these there were these hippies on acid dancing to soul music. That's kind of weird and interesting. But mm. but it wasn't. Yeah. But the idea that they had this fantastic audio sound system wasn't really known. No. But everybody knew about the Paradise Garage. Absolutely. Everybody knew that the Paradise Garage, this legendary New York, this New York uh, nightclub, had supposedly had the best sound system in the world. So what's going on with that? Well, what's going on with that is it's not altogether different, distinct, distinctive from the loft, as, as is so often the case. So, uh, you know, as I was saying just before, um, David Mancuso befriended a sound engineer called Richard Long, uh, bought his first pair of clipshorns kind of from a, a, a person who Richard Long had sold them to, uh, Jimmy Miller. And then David asked 
ask Richard Long and not Alex Rosner um, to build him the base reinforcements when initially David decided he wanted to offset his Twitter arrays uh, with some extra base. So already in the very early 1970s, Richard Long was was becoming known as a as a person, as an engineer who was specialising in the reproduction of bass. And he went on to, uh, with a guy called Mike Stone, uh, who was a loft regular, open uh, party space called the Soho Place, that in many respects mimicked the loft. It was one of numerous parties that kind of, re, you know, you know, borrowed David's kind of template uh, to avoid st- selling alcohol in order to stay open all night. Uh, and used and held these parties in his own home, which effectively was also, you know, his own kind of place for, you know, testing and developing and experimenting on on equipment. Um, so these parties became known for their their base kind of elements, their base components. And then Richard kind of got uh, and and this kind of the role of base in, in New York City party culture got to be uh, re-engaged and developed significantly. Uh, after Michael Brody, also a, a regular on the Dancer of the Loft, uh, decided uh, to open the Paradise Garage and started uh, construction parties with his, his DJ, Larry Levan, also a regular on the Dancer of the Loft. Uh, we, am I getting repetitive? Um, <laughs> in, in January 1977. Now, the construction parties were in the kind of side room, a side room of, of this kind of very expansive parking garage which is where the name the paradise garage took part of its name from so there was a real challenge on what to do with the space in terms of its sound and it was kind of i mean we'll, we'll return to you know this is worthy of you know more detail than or more, more a bit more talk than we can give it here but the, sh- the short version of the story is that up until this point larry levan had basically worshipped pretty much everything that david had had done uh, and when he had gone to, for example, uh, play at a uh, Michael Brody's uh, first party, which was called Reed Street, you know, part of the whole deal was that Michael Brody was going to reproduce the system that David had at the loft using clipshorns. But by the time Michael Brody moved to the Paradise Garage and the challenge emerged of building a system for this, you know, huge room that I'm not sure how many times bigger it was than the on, than the loft on Prince Street, but I don't know, it could have been. I don't know if it's six or eight. Uh, certainly, a, the capacity was was around about three thousand people in that space, whereas the capacity at the loft probably was around four hundred, five hundred. Uh, David might have a thousand, a thousand two hundred people going through in the course of a night, but um, but that was you know there was a different scale at work here. And Larry Levan initially was, you know, the initial idea was that uh, for, was to get Michael, uh, sorry, to get Alex Rosner, who who sort of assisted David with the development of the system at the loft, to get Alex Rosner to to be the over to be the engineer who installed the system at the garage. Um, and Alex was committed to basically working with, you know, an expanded version of David's model, filling the space with clipshorns. And this is what David thought should happen. David was kind of vaguely friendly with Michael Brody and had actually introduced him to uh, the Paradise Garage space in, in the first place. So that all got underway. But at some point, Larry Levan uh, changed his mind and decided that he didn't just want the kind of warmth and precision that we identify with David's system, but he wanted to kind of have power. Uh, he wanted to have force. He wanted to have a, you know, create a sense of, um, 
urgency, in t- just sheer intensity. Well, the things you were saying about the about the Jamaican setup that there's part of you know being almost you be over you're taken over by sound. There was this there was this kind of um, essay by Walter Hughes, which was one of the first good essays written about disco, called "In the Empire of the Beat." Um, you know, it captures it quite nicely. It's just this idea of there's a territory, it's an expanding territory, and it's driven by the beat. And you're basically, you know, there's a, um, you are compelled to follow that beat. You kind of give up some of your agency, basically. Yeah, I think, and it's worth it's worth noting that because we're constantly saying how great the clipshorns are, there are definitely going to be hi-fi heads out there saying no clipshorns aren't that great because their bass response is terrible. And it, it is worth noting that for people whose preferred kind of musical experience is more this one of total immersion, that indeed you associate with post-Paradise Garage, like club culture, or with kind of reggae, the, the Lost System, they experience the Lost System as a bit frustrating, you know, because it because the bass isn't heavy enough. And you can you can balance that. Like a lot of people with a Lost-style system now use subwoofers and stuff as well. But... It's, it's just worth acknowledging. I don't know. Anyway, no, so absolutely. Right. So, well, I think we, we're going to come. So, so Larry felt that way. Larry also, Larry wanted more of that loud immersion experience. Well, he wanted to explore that possibility. You know, basically it was the acolyte deciding that he wanted to kind of change a few things that his teacher had told him. Um, and, you know, I think Larry and David had a bit of an argument over this effectively. David was insisting that you could get the sound levels that require that Larry wanted by just putting enough clipshorns in the room um, and getting the right amplification for them. Um, yeah, but uh, I mean, by this point, David was quite committed to this really, this sort of zen, this zen of amplification. Absolutely, you yeah. shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't do anything. Shouldn't have any EQs. Shouldn't yeah. have any mixing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And any anything else is sort of is is the ego of the DJ interfering. Absolutely, which, absolutely. No, that's a really it's a good a good time to mention. So yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a really important point. Is that you know David decided indeed to get rid of the tweeter rays and to get rid of the bass reinforcements. And this whole this whole change happened around the time that he uh, moved from Broadway, having been the party having been shut down on Broadway, six or seven Broadway, and moved to 99 Prince Street. And it was a much bigger space, and he needed to buy a lot of equipment. And very early on into that move, a friend kind of told him about a piece of kit that David found out he could buy or was told he could buy um, at li- a, a very expensive uh, stereo shop on the Upper East Side called Lyric Hi-Fi. Uh, and David ended up dealing with this sort of sound engineer there called, called Larry Valeza. And this took David to the next level and set off a whole new train, which we can't get into too much detail here, but a whole other train of revisions that saw him effectively start to invest in what's, and you know more about this than I do, but what sometimes is referred to as kind of class A sound, uh, sometimes is referred to as audiophile sound, but basically means that you spend as much money as you possibly can on trying to create perfect sound reproduction. And this, in fact, led David indeed to start undoing a system, get rid of the tweet arrays, get rid of bass reinforcements, start to kind of buy very high-end gear. Uh, Levin, the Levinson equipment became particularly important to him. Uh, and David was always very impressed that Mark Levinson started out as a musician, as a as a cellist, 
um, before, and, and basically made Stars of Eight amps because he wasn't happy with the, with the musicality of the amps that were out there. So David loved this idea of you know, buying equipment for someone who was so dedicated and immersed in music. And he just he just constructed this system that no one that just simply didn't exist in public anywhere in the world in terms of the degree of precision. Free your mind and your ass will follow. So one of the things that emerged, of of course, um, with David's tireless attempts to improve his sound system and and effectively spend whatever spare money he might have on improving that sound system is the you know he just kind of this the system became this 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 awesome thing david was you know would would regularly get in sound engineers to come and you know see his setup and listen to what he created in order to get their advice on on how he how he could improve things and you know usually the response was actually i can't improve this can can i borrow some of the things you're doing for systems I'm about to work on. So there was this kind of useful, quiet magnificence to what David was doing. And so an example of one of the records that David got to play in the loft that simply would never translate into any other kind of situation uh, was the Chuckman Joan featuring Esther Satterfield, uh, Land of Make Believe. And it's a record that became a, one of David's favourite records. I mean, the land of make-believe captures so much about what the, what the loft was all about, about kind of magical, utopian space. But there's, it's the kind of, it's the, the sh- very quiet aspects of the record that uh, meant that it was just, you know, as, I, as I already said, couldn't play it at, in, a, in a public discotheque. People would just not... Go on, sorry. sorry, sorry. No, no, go for it. I think it follows from what we said about the limitations of the loft sound system for some people. I mean, the strength of that sound system, its lack of, of, of overall power, its lack of bass, is it had a kind of delicacy and de- level of detail, especially in the mid-range and the treble, which meant that you, you could play a whole s- set of records that would probably just sound sort of banal on a normal sound system, but actually come across as having this beautiful, this sort of fairy-like, sort of crystalline clarity. And uh, like the, the Mangione record is a really typical example. Tana Gardner worked that body, 1979. This is a classic example of a disco record about dancing, in which people are explicitly celebrating the idea of dancing. But of course, also, it absolutely, the, the lyric, work that body, it completely resonates with what you were saying earlier about, about disco as a sort of alternative to jogging, about disco as kind of inherently physical experience, about an experience of physicality as a source of joy. Don't 
it kind of goes back to Marcuse, really. You know, Marcuse was seeing, you know, the entire life was repressive because we were t- we were told that we had to constrain our our desires and our drives in order to kind of, con- you know, to be civilized and go out to work. And work was part of being constrained. And the idea was all of the, you know, if we start to work less, we can sort, sort of liberate this uh, these energies, these this potentiality. And so, so work that body is like. It's like, it's not that people didn't want to do any work. They just wanted to kind of work and, you know, there was an understanding that you put effort into something, you can get rewards from it. But it's a permanent tension, isn't it? The relationship between dance culture and work. Like, is dance culture the thing that is your compensation for having a shitty job mm. and a shitty life mm. and that reinforces a society and re helps to reproduce a society in which those things are accepted and normalised? And definitely at certain times in its history, Dance elements of dance culture have willingly embraced that social role, and that disgusts and appalls me every time it happens. On the other hand, dance culture has also been seen, as you said, as a sort of, as a sort of experimental space within which different modes of being, different ways of channeling our collective effort and collective energy, different ways of feeling what it feels like to do something active can be experienced. And, I, and for me, this is the crucial point, actually, I think to finish on today, and it's reiterating what you just said a minute ago, which is that all of what's going on across the 70s is this is that these dance spaces, sound systems, dance floors, they're, they're like laboratories. They're experimental spaces. They're spaces where people are trying to answer questions. Like I think we did, we said on an earlier programme, maybe, that you know, the, the question the loft was trying to answer was, was the question, one of the key questions of the counterculture at the end of the 60s. How do we take acid together without going crazy? Or, but there's a whole other range of questions that are also being investigated, from the funk dance floor to the northern soul dance floor to the disco dance floor. Like what, you know, what does it mean to have a fully, a form of physical expression, you know, which isn't constrained by previously received ideas about what bodies should do or particular kinds of bodies should do well what does it what are the ways of being joyful together that we can experience using contemporary technologies yeah using new kinds of music new kinds of amplification and all that stuff and i think it's that it's the it's the experimental status of the dance floors and sound systems in the 70s that i think makes them still so important for us because to some extent we're still we're still working through some of the sort of experimental agendas that they set out for us. Mm-hmm.